Amen. Okay, we have copies of God's Word if you need one. Um, you have to make a decision if you will find it easier to literally flip through actual pages in a paper Bible or to use an app where you have to flip around in the same book. If, if your app makes it easy for you to flip around from chapter to chapter, that's fine. If not, maybe lift your hand up and we'll bring you a Bible if you think it'll be easier to go back and forth a little bit uh, in a paper Bible because we're covering 50 chapters in one sermon. Okay. I don't know why I said we, I'm covering. Uh, but uh, So we're going to do an overview of the book of Genesis and the reason why we're doing that is because we're going to, uh, we're going to have a sermon series through the book of Leviticus and some of you are going, that doesn't sound very exciting. That's why we want to do it. We want, we want Leviticus to be in one of your, in your repertoire of go-to, you know, all 66 books should be go-to books, but in all honesty, some books are go-to books and some books are the ones that we kind of trudge through when the Bible in a year reading plan makes us do it. And I want Leviticus to be one of those books. Um, we've covered Genesis in a sermon series before. We've also walked through Exodus more recently than that. But before we jump into Leviticus, we want to do a one survey, one sermon survey of Genesis, remind us of what, what that's about. Next week we'll do a one sermon survey of Exodus, remind us of what's going on there so that we're prepared to do Leviticus. Now, we'll eventually make our way through all five books, the first five books of the Old Testament, which is referred to as the Torah, the Law, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, some have called it the Pentateuch. I'm going to explain where that word came from, but the first five books cohere almost as one big book. And so when you read the rest of the Old Testament, it helps you to understand those first five books. So when the prophets are preaching, that's what they're preaching. That's what they're asking the people to return to. And when you get to the New Testament, the law is quoted heavily. A lot of Jesus' debates with the Pharisees uh, centers on the law and the function of the law. So I'm actually excited to get into Leviticus uh, and talk about its relevance for us today and how it helps us see the big picture of the gospel. We're going to do that in Genesis. Uh, and, and when I thought about how to uh, think about the book of Genesis, I thought of like when you are on a trail or maybe even at a mall, you're in a place where there are multiple paths and directions and you need a directory, just a big picture that has a huge map on it. And I don't know if this happened to you, it's happened to me, you go up to the map, and it's a beautiful map, and it's colors, and it's coded, and there's numbers, and there's paths, but if there's no red dot that says you are here, I can't, I don't know how to orient, it's harder to figure out where I am in the map. Nice map, beautiful map, well done, where am I there? Uh, not very helpful if I don't know how I fit into this map because then I don't know where to go or where it's going. And I think for a lot of us, you know, we read the Bible, we hear about the Bible, we know verses here and there, and we, it's, it's like nice map, but I don't know how I fit into things. Or maybe we look around us in the world and we see how things are, we have a sense of how things should be, and it feels like it should be like this, but it's actually like that. And what, what, what is the map of the world and how do I fit into this greater story uh, that God has established? On the other hand, it's completely useless 
to walk up to a directory that's completely blank that has the dot that says you are here. You are here where? If there's no path and no structure, just a big white space and then a dot, you are here. And that's what we get from the world. You are special. You are awesome. There's no purpose in life. There's no reason why you were born. There's no, there's no meaning behind anything. After death, there's just nothingness. Before we were here, there was nothingness. And the world is just spiraling toward you know, an eventual, uh, uh, you know, be burned up by, by, the, by the sun. And, you know, you're just molecules that fell together. There's no meaning in anything. But you're special. That, makes, that doesn't cohere. You are here. Where? Just a white space. There's no map. There's no structure. There's no overarching story that you belong to. So the book of Genesis wants to do both. Provide this overarching map, this bigger story, but not just a big grand story, nice, nice tale, but how you fit into that story. And it has everything to do with living your life today. So turn with me to the book of Genesis. If you have your Bibles, first book. First book in the Bible. A book of beginnings. That's why it's called Genesis. And uh, I'm kind of thinking on my feet as how, how much to cover, where to stop. So we'll do it together. Hopefully you're familiar with some of the story, but you'll remember that in the very beginning... The earth was without form and void, it says right there in verse 2. God created the heavens and the earth, and then it kind of backs up and says, you know, the earth was uh, without form, and it was void, and there was darkness over the face of the deep. So it was uh, a big ball of chaos. There was no order, there was no structure, it just was darkness, it was depth, it was an abyss, a floating abyss in the middle of space. And there was no light. Uh, everything that we associate with goodness, it wasn't there yet. The things that we associate with judgment and darkness uh, are there. Uh, it's empty and it's dark. And out of that, God creates order. He orders things and his creation is orderly. He creates things in order and sets up the creation week uh, to demonstrate this orderliness uh, in creation. And then after he creates man, we don't know how long it takes, but uh, the, the serpent comes and uh, deceives Eve, tempts Adam, and Eve falls first. Adam is right there and falls with her, um, and we are back into chaos. So from chaos, God creates order, and then the order is roughly still there, but now it's fallen, and now it's cursed. There's still going to be vegetation, but it's going to be vegetation with thorns. There's still going to be childbirth, but it's going to be childbirth with, with heavy pain. There's still going to be work that's enjoyable. Man has things to do, things to accomplish. Man is built to accomplish things and do things and strive, but now it's going to be by the sweat of your brow that you accomplish things. It's going to be difficult to accomplish things. And so order is still there. It's not back to complete void and emptiness. There's still order there, but it's a broken order, and it's a damaged order. It's a cursed order of things. So we go from chaos to order to fall in just the first few chapters. And we spend a lot of time on God's conversation with Adam and Eve, and rightly so, but I, I'm always taken by God's conversation with Cain. In chapter 4, we see the story of Cain and his brother Abel. 
It says in verse 2, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain was a worker of the ground. So they had different tasks, different careers, if you will. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So the difference between them is Cain's, Cain's sacrifice is nondescript. There's nothing special about it. fruit from the ground. He brought a gift, but Abel's uh, sacrifice or offering to the Lord uh, has these descriptions. He brought of the firstborn of the flock. He didn't just bring flock. He brought the firstborn. He didn't just bring any portion. He brought the fat portion. He's bringing God the best. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And this is a a theme that you'll see throughout the whole Bible. Uh, You can have church and you can sing the right songs and God has no love for it. You know, you, you think of the prophets where he says, God is up there putting fingers in his ears going, stop the noise is bothering my ears. It's bothering my ears. You singing songs, and your heart isn't behind it. You don't, you don't really care. You're just here to have a service. You're not really here to worship me. I hate that. And so we see the beginning of that here. And Cain gets mad. What? I brought the offering. I did the service. Yeah, but what was behind the service? That's, I'm not feeling that. And how does Cain deal with that? Cain wants to worship God on Cain's terms. He doesn't want to worship God on God's terms and that is, that is the underlying current for the rest of humanity's story. It's not just a rejection of God, but it's an acceptance of God, how we want God to be. And right in the very beginning, God is saying, no, it has to be how I want it to be. And Cain doesn't like it. And so his face fell, it says in verse 5. In verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, here's the warning, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Man, I love that. God is the consummate dad. He's the perfect dad. Say, if you just do what I say, won't it go well for you? God has every right to pull out the, I'm God and do what I say card. I I demand worship because I deserve worship. I created this. I put you here. I made that happen. I gave you the skill. I gave you the fruit. I deserve worship, but he doesn't do that. He, he puts it in terms of that even a, a debased mind like Cain can understand. Don't you want things to go better for you? If you have two doors in front of you and one is a door and the behind that door is pain and suffering and difficult and heartache and tragedy, and the other door is peace and, and love and, and things will go well, smooth ride, wouldn't you pick the smooth ride? No. Just by virtue of the fact that you said that's the good door, I want the other door. It's rebellion. But God is the dad that comes along. He doesn't kill Cain. He doesn't injure him. He warns him. And he tells him about this thing called sin. If you do not do well, here's what's through that other door. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You must master it, Cain. This is always going to nag at you. Sin is always going to be there tempting you. It's not going to go away. You have to have the discipline to always go through the right door and not go through that door and where it's crouching to pounce on you. You have to do it. Well, Cain doesn't listen, and his sin that pounces on him takes him all the way to the point of murdering his brother. So he murders his brother, 
And God, in his gracious mercy, gives him a punishment not of death, but of exile. But then he also gives him protection in that exile. I find that to be extraordinarily merciful. <laughs> this punishment is too much for me to bear. They already had other relatives. Remember, it said, in the course of time this happened. So this is over time. Uh, and there's presumably brothers, sisters, cousins running around. There's people now. The earth is getting populated. And he's afraid that he, some of their other relatives are going to take vengeance on him. And God said, no, I'm going to put a mark on you. We don't know what that mark is, but that'll communicate if anybody takes vengeance on you, then I'll take vengeance on them. He's protecting Cain. Amazingly gracious God. But the reason why I think that's so important early on in these chapters is because God is describing to us the struggle with sin that's always going to be a struggle because of that fall. And it gets worse. It's not just Cain. It's people. People are like this. They, they allow, they like sin. They want it to crouch. Sin doesn't even have to crouch after a while. It's just, it's a buddy. It's a pal. And it's, it's invited. In chapter 6, verse 5, Man already began to multiply, and there's all kinds of people, and some weird, weird stuff is going on in the first four verses of chapter 6, which we can talk about separate time. But verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man, whatever you think about the first four verses of chapter 6, this is the point of it. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. All they thought was evil. All they ever did was think sinful thoughts. So God, in a sense, hits the reset button by wiping out the earth with a flood, saving Noah and his family as a, a righteous family. Uh, and they come out of the ark and they begin to populate the earth all over again after the flood subsides. And after the flood subsides, we get God's promise that he will never flood the earth again. That's in chapter 8, but look at verse 21. Very interesting, the Lord is promising never to wipe out the earth with a flood again, but within the promise, it's a, it's, a, it's a very discouraging truth. He says, I will never again, verse 21 of chapter 8, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. In other words, this is still going to be the case. If you look at the flood narrative, wow, all they ever did was think evil thoughts all the time? They must have been crazy. Glad we're better. No, as soon as they get off the boat, God says, this is, this is the case. It's not environmental conditioning. From when you're a little baby, you want that toy. Why should that other baby have that toy? I want to play with that toy. Give me, mine, no. What are the first words you learn? So God is saying, I'm not going to destroy man again, not because man is going to be better this time but because I want that flood to serve as a picture of, of a judgment that's going to come later. But I'm not going to keep doing the little mini-judgments on a worldwide scale like that. But it's not because man is any better. And if we look around ourselves and we look at the news and we see political parties slashing each other, and we dive into that, we, 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 we repost the stupid memes that are completely eviscerating a human being created in God's image because they're not your platform. And so it seeps into how we, we're just used to it. We're accustomed to it, and it's hard for us to see that we are the ones that, that are surrounded by evil, and we live in Noah's day all over again. So 
When we look at where we are on this map, yeah, it's a, it's a map that's cursed. There's order and there's structure to it, but it's damaged. And there's pain and there's suffering. So God, from the very beginning, is not painting a picture that the world is beautiful and dandy and nice. And, uh, you know, of course, there's sin and there's hurt and there's pain. We play our part in it as well. You know, Noah... Noah messes up, he sins, and then it's not long before the people get together. They build this Tower of Babel, and when they do that, they say, hey, let's build for ourselves this, ta- this, this, this tower. Let's build it for ourselves. Let's gather, instead of spreading out and fulfilling and multiplying the earth, multiplying and fulfilling the earth, let's, let's kind of hunker down, get together, and let's make something, a monument of ourselves. It's about ourselves, and so... God confuses their languages to kind of force them to go out and and create nations and peoples. And so we see this worsening of of sin throughout. But there's a promise of hope. And that's in chapter 3, verse 15. If you can look there uh, briefly. If there's one verse to highlight in the entire book of Genesis, one verse that captures uh, the bigger story and how you fit into that story, that's chapter 3. After the fall, after that initial sin, God comes and God curses the serpent, the woman, and man. But within his curse to the serpent, his curse, in, embedded in his curse to the serpent is a promise of hope for woman and man. So that even though women will suffer and even though man will suffer, uh, the, the, that suffering is not going to be the end of them. But there's a promise embedded in the curse to the serpent that will be the end of the serpent and is the reason why woman and man still have a chance. He tells the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. This is verse 14. And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now here it is. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, not they, he, the offspring, the seed from the woman will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there's this fight between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. Everything that uh, Satan, uh, the deceiver, uh, all, all those that, that would um, represent his agenda, uh, fighting against the cross. This is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage against the sun? Kiss the sun lest you be destroyed. This is, this is Genesis 3.15. This uh, continual battle between evil and good, between the effects of the curse and God's promise of blessing. And God promises blessing, promises a victory over the serpent through the seed of the woman. That your blow to him will be a heel strike, but his blow to you will be the crushing of your head. It's not one for, it's not even, it's not equal. It's you strike, you think you won, but you get crushed in the end. That promise pushes through the rest of Genesis. Not because it's my favorite verse and I just want to see it everywhere, but I think that's what Genesis is about, tracking that promise. For instance, 
If you read the book of Genesis carefully, you'll notice <clears throat> kind of a heading. Now, in your, in your Bibles, you'll see headings. You know, you have chapter, and right at the top, you'll see like a, a bold font, you know, that gives you a heading, a rubric. Those aren't inspired. Original scripture doesn't have numbers. There's no chapters. There's no verses. There's no headings officially. But there are headings sometimes in the sense that uh, you get these repeated phrases. And the repeated phrase that gives you the map of Genesis and how it's flowing is the word generations. There's ten of these sections. Uh, The first one you see in chapter 2, verse 4. Generations of the heavens and the earth. In chapter 5, verse 1, which is where I'm at right now, but you don't have to be there, but chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Then we get the generations of Noah in chapter 6, verse 9. So as you continue reading through Genesis, these are the generations of heavens and the earth. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah. And it keeps going like that. Now, why is that? Why am I saying that? Just to be, you know, uh, detail-oriented? No. Because the word for generations comes from the word to give birth. This is the story of this new wave of birth givings. That's the seed. Tracking from the heavens and the earth in general, then specifically from Adam, then specifically from Noah because he's kind of a new Adam starting over again, a failed new Adam because he sins. But then onward from there, it's, it's like the author of Genesis sections, the, the episodes within the story of Genesis are according to the birth givings that track that promise from Genesis 3.15. There is a promise, which seed is it going to be? Which offspring is going to be the serpent-crushing offspring? Is it Noah? Oh, it could be Noah. He's righteous. He's the one that gathered people in the ark. In very many ways, he does represent who we'll know to be Christ, but it's not Noah. As soon as he gets off the boat, he, he messes up pretty bad. Now, is it Abraham? Or is it the one that's going to be born to Abraham, Isaac? And so that question keeps getting pushed. And so the world is worsening. The world is sinful. The world is evil. But there's this promise of good and blessing within that world that is tracked throughout the book of Genesis. So Genesis wants to track that promise, and if you don't see that promise as the kernel of the story, then Genesis is just kind of like stories. You know, kind of like this guy's faith, that guy's faith. Yeah, but faith in what? Right? That's how you orient yourself to what, why you're reading Genesis and how it has everything to do with you, because we adopt the same Faith, faith in that promise of that seed that will defeat sin. How do you defeat the sin crouching at your door? How do you heed God's warning toward Cain? Sin wants to jump on you and you have to master it. Have you mastered it? Can you master it? No. (laughs) You are not better than Cain. I'm not better than Cain. I am Cain. And even if I don't go to the point of actually bashing my brother's head in with a rock, because I'm jealous or envious or or prideful, those feelings that eventually culminate in that extreme reside in me. And I can't master it on my own. I need that seed promise to do the head crushing of the serpent for me because I can't do it. And so as you read through Genesis and and onward, you you should be feeling this, uh, this tension and suspense of this promised seed, and that's why the Abram stories, Abram, Abraham, when his name is changed, should be suspenseful for you. 
If you're just reading it as stories, it's kind of like, wow, this guy is, okay, you know, he couldn't have kids. What's the big deal? If Abraham is the one through whom the seed is going to come and he can't have kids, you don't get a seed. You don't get the promise. Satan's head is not going to be crushed if the seed is in jeopardy. So Abram's whole story is a story of the promised seed and how it keeps getting in jeopardy. So we see the initial promise in chapter 12 when God calls Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. The purpose of me blessing you is not to have a blessed person. The purpose of me blessing you is to have blessed people. Someone through whom the blessing will come. That's the seed. And he makes it even more explicit in verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is not trying to play favorites. He's using one particular people group as a vehicle through which all the people groups will be blessed. So if anyone tells you, well, this is mainly about Israel, yeah, it's about Israel as a vehicle. A vehicle through which blessing will come to everybody. Gentiles everywhere. Thank God. That's what the story of Abram is about. He promises that he's going to have not just one seed, but many people. And it's through these people that the world will be blessed. It's through these people that that eventual seed, capital S, will come. But they can't have kids. They're old. Sarah's old. And so they, uh, it looks like the promise isn't going to happen. And so they do weird things like Sarah has this idea. How about we use uh, Hagar and you can... You know, sleep with Hagar and have a seed there, but it'll be my seed. You know, this this corrupt kind of thinking. Like, okay, we'll just we'll manufacture the seed if it's not going to happen. And God said, I didn't give you that plan. That plan is stupid. Yeah, but we're waiting and we're just getting old. When Sarah heard the promise, she laughed. You remember that? So, we see that threat. They see barrenness as a threat to the seed and so that's why they try to do something about it they're not just trying to have a kid because everybody else has kids and we're just kind of alone in the house they, it's the seed promise this is the world is is hanging on this all the blessing that will come to nations is hanging on them having a child and so they, they try to manufacture it they don't they don't quite see how god is going to do it and so doubt creeps in again because evil hearts broken hearts Doubtful hearts have a hard time seeing that God's promise will play out as he said, even if everything around me looks like it's pointing in the opposite direction. And so we try to take things into our own hands. You said going through this door will be better, but I think I could just go through this side door and do it a little bit faster, God. I'll do it a little bit quicker, God. We try to spiritualize some of our decisions. So rather than waiting on the right spouse, you kind of force and convince yourself that this person is right for you and maybe enter into a marriage too quickly and one that's not good for you because you can wait. I mean, that's just one example, a career that you rush into, a decision that you rush into because you didn't want to wait for things to happen in a way that 
will go well for you. You, you want to jump on things. And so it's hard to judge Abram and, and Sarah. This is how they behave. And so they do the whole Hagar thing, really weird. That causes, I mean, for, we're still suffering the effects of that horrible decision. Then in chapter 17, God reminds them, have faith, I'm going to, this is a promise that I'm giving you. He unpacks it for them again. And then in chapter 20, they, they think the seed is in jeopardy again. You remember they, they encounter Abimelech, and Abimelech really likes Sarah. She's really pleasing to look at, to put it in biblical terms. Okay, uh, And Abram goes, okay, they'll kill me to take her. So let's just say we're brother and sister. And Abimelech almost has Sarah. And this is a threat again to the seed. And God intervenes to say, stop, you're lying to protect it. Stop doing different things. I just cling to the promise. So we see this back and forth of Abraham's doubt being tested, his faith being tested rather, and him showing doubt. And then it finally culminates in chapter 22 where God tells Abram to take the son, now he's born, now they have Isaac, and he's saying, take the son, the one that we've been waiting for, the one that's going to be the one through whom the seed comes to rescue the world and be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Take this seed, the one you've been waiting for, the one you were doubting, the one I kept chastising you about and reminding you about the promise, and kill him. And take him up to this mountain and kill him. So that entire chapter 22 of Genesis that many of us are so familiar with, it's not just kind of a random test of faith, but specifically about this promise. That's why in the New Testament we learn that Abraham figured out, even if I kill Isaac, I guess God will raise him from the dead. Even though it doesn't say that in Genesis, Abraham just reasoned. If God promised the seed and the seed dies, well then the seed will have to, after dying, will have to rise from the dead in order to keep the promise intact. I guess God is going to do it. So he pulls out the knife thinking he's going to kill Isaac and then he was going to sit there and wait to see how long it would take for Isaac to get back up. Because at that point, Abraham's faith has matured to the point where even if everything looks like it's pointing in the opposite direction, God's promises will be true. It doesn't matter what it looks like in front of you. If God said, this is the path, take that path. Well, it looks like it leads to a cliff. No, the other one leads to a cliff. No, the other one looks like a nice meadow with daffodils. That's a cliff because God said it's a cliff. You want to find out the hard way? Or do you want to take the scary route that's actually the route where sin doesn't pounce on you and destroy your faith? So there's that path of faith that has everything to do with God's promise. It's because God said so even when things don't look differently. And in chapter 22, the reason why Abraham succeeds is not because he's so awesome. It's because he's finally come to the point where, man, even if death looks like it's going to threaten the seed. God will even conquer death to make this promise happen. And of course, God stops him before the knife plunges because that big show-off move of bringing the seed back from the death, he's not going to waste that on Isaac. He's saving that one. So we see this promise of the seed, how it's threatened, how we doubt it, how we're not sure, we don't cling to it, we want to do our own thing. And that's how God lays out the story of Genesis. And so the story of Genesis provides little pictures along the way of what that seed is going to be like. Noah is one of those pictures. Noah is a type of Christ. He 
presents the gospel. You have to believe what he's saying in order to be saved. You have to be folded into his protection in order to escape the flood of judgment. Um, So that's a miniature picture, and so is uh, chapter 22, I believe, of Isaac serving as a type of Christ. But the whole book of Genesis ends with one big picture. So here's how Genesis rolls out in three moves. The first section of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, is the promise of the seed. And that promise gets threatened, and God keeps rescuing that promise, and God keeps that promise on track. But the first 11 chapters is the promise of the seed. And then chapters 12 through 36 is God's protection of the seed. He protects this promise. Even when it looks like it's not going to happen, God keeps protecting it. Even when his own people threaten it by doing stupid things and making stupid decisions, God protects that promise, this protection of the seed. And then chapters 37 through 50, it's a picture of the seed. We get into a story of Joseph, who's in the line of Abraham, of course. And 37 through 50, these chapters give us one big picture of that evil versus good promise in chapter 3, verse 15. So the last story of Joseph illustrates it for us. And we won't get into all the details of it. But really quickly, Joseph is his dad's favorite. His brothers find him very annoying. God reveals dreams to him about how special he is and probably uh, foolishly goes up to his brother and is like, I had this dream. It was really awesome. All of you were serving me. It was really cool. Shut up. You know, like after a while, Joseph was probably really annoying. Um, You know, his dad gave him this multicolored coat. Everyone else is wearing drab burlap sacks or whatever they had, you know, sheepskins and stuff. But this guy had like, you know, the letterman jacket with all the buttons and like it it was like the expensive thing that that you just protected and kept in your closet and showed off everywhere, okay? But didn't even earn it. Didn't even earn the letters. It's just mama's favorite, you know, dad's favorite, Um, So the brothers are envious, and they hate him, and they don't want to uh, recognize that there is something special about him. Yeah, he's being cocky about it, but they they don't want to accept that truth, and so they perpetrate evil against him. His his own brothers uh, jump him and and, and put him in this pit, and they sell him to slavery, and they lie to the father and tell the father that he was eaten up by wild animals and all of these things. And then in slavery, uh, God allows, gives him favor and allows him to rise up in ranks and gain favor in Egypt. And then, oops, something else happens. And he ends up back in jail again. So there's just up and down of Joseph. But it ends with Joseph on top, right? And then finally his brothers, there's a famine, they're hungry, they're starving, they need food, they have no idea Joseph is there. And when they see Joseph, they, they have no idea it's Joseph. He's got the Egyptian makeup on, he's older, you know, they don't re- recognize that it's Joseph. And Joseph has the perfect opportunity to completely destroy them, throw them in a pit, make them slaves, get back at them, and he doesn't. So if you'll turn to chapter 50, We'll see how this picture continues and this, this illustrates the promise of Genesis 3.15. It 
In chapter 50, that paragraph between 15 and 21, we see the brothers uh, wrestling with this idea of, of discovering it's Joseph and asking for his forgiveness. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil. In other words, maybe the reason why Joseph hasn't killed us yet is he's just waiting for dad to die. Now dad is dead, he's going to kill us. And so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. So they're trying to lie to get out of it. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. So there's the threat of evil again. There's evil that corrupts the world. That is the thought of our hearts continually. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. Now here's, here's the key with the battle between evil and good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Evil is not an oops for God. God didn't create the world and then, oh, uh, didn't see that coming. Gave Adam and Eve the garden and then, oh, I forgot. I forgot to take choice button, turn off the choice button, you know, like, yeah, he created the choice. He created the option. He created the sin door. Did he not know they would take it? Of course he did. He wants to use it. Why would you do that? Why would you set up the world, create order out of chaos for it to go back into disorder? Well, for a greater good. That's the principle. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. What's the greater good in this case? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In other words, had they not sold Joseph into slavery, Joseph would have never been in Egypt. If Joseph was never in Egypt, he would have never rise through the ranks. If he never rise through the ranks, then he would have never had that interpretation of the dream that God gave him in order to store food away. If he never stored food away, when the famine hit, they wouldn't be able to rescue themselves, let alone anybody else. And now that the nations are coming to them for food, they're the only source of food. Joseph is the only one that can provide sustenance for other people. That only happened because evil happened. And Joseph gets glory out of it. Why does God allow evil? For a greater good. God wants to be a rescuer, and he can't be a rescuer if there was no fall. Now you might go, why does he want to be a rescuer? And keep pushing it back into eternal questions, but God receives glory out of being a rescuer. That out of disorder, he created order, and that order fell into disorder again. But then the order that he creates out of that is more beautiful than the order he created the first time because it's redemption now, not just creation. It's bringing something back from death. It's total resurrection. It's bringing peace out of total disorder. It's making rebels into worshipers. That's the greater good. That's the greater good. And when people doubt, I don't think Joseph has anything to do with Jesus. I don't think he pictures anything. How do you not see it? How do you not see that? Had Jesus not gone into the pit, into death himself, so that through that suffering, he can rise up, ascend, and bring help to many who are starving? Jesus is Joseph. 
Joseph isn't the ultimate promise, but Jesus is. When Joseph is approached as if he's God, he goes, whoa, am I in the place of God? No, he's just a picture. When Jesus is approached like he's God, he's like, yeah, you got it. So where do we find ourselves on the map? You belong in the story of God's, of God's triumph over evil. His good triumphs over evil. That's how Genesis connects all the way to the book of Revelation. You should read the book of Revelation, not scared. You should read the book of Revelation going, yes, I can't wait till this final climax of the story because Jesus wins. This is also, again, Psalm 2. All the nations will rise and rage against God. They, they were the ones that killed Jesus. They don't like Jesus. Jesus comes back with final judgment, but he saves those who come to him in repentance. All those who are starving, all those stuck in the famine, if you come to Jesus, he will give you the food that he has secured through his death and resurrection. Or if you like an earlier picture, you will not drown in the flood if you come to Jesus and enter his ark. There's numerous pictures of what this looks like. But the point is, he's giving, God is giving us pictures in Genesis to show us how you fit in this world, surrounded by evil, surrounded by suffering. You experience suffering yourself. Sometimes you even dabble in the evil yourself. You want to listen to God's words to Cain to not get pounced on by sin, but you can't always do it. And then Paul tells us the answer in the book of Romans. How do you put off sin? How do you cast off unrighteousness? You put on Christ. That's the only way to do it. The seed has been revealed. It's not a mystery for us. In the Old Testament, it was always a mystery. Who's that seed? Is this going to be it? Is David going to be it? Saul sure wasn't. Okay, David Okay, David messed up. Overall, pretty good, but he, he really messed up. How about Solomon? And so the, 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 the promise keeps getting punted until the opening chapters of the New Testament. So where's your faith? What are you clinging to? How do you defeat evil? Do you, do you still kind of go back and forth going, ah, that, that sin that keeps pouncing on me and I keep giving into it, I keep failing. I mean, are you clinging to Christ? Are you clinging to the promise? Or are you kind of going, okay, I've got this. I'm going to do it this time. Noah couldn't do it. Abraham couldn't do it. You know, Solomon couldn't do it, but I'll do it. That, no, no, no. We need to embrace Christ. He is our promise. And then sometimes obedience doesn't look very attractive. It is very difficult for you to believe that obeying what Scripture is telling you to obey is actually going to go well for me. But by your faith in Jesus Christ, He will empower you to see that that's the path. Even if everything around you looks to be threatening that promise. God's promises can never be threatened. They're intact. God protects His promises and He centers them. In Jesus Christ. I hope you know Christ this morning. If you don't, you're a red dot in a blank map. There's no direction. I hope He's the center for everything for you. Let's pray.